Good morning, everyone, and, and welcome uh, to this, the, one of the first sessions of the Literary Festival at the uh, London School of Economics. And um, I'm Adrian Searle, art critic of The Guardian, and I'm sure you all know who Hans Ulrich Obrist is, but just to recap, just very slightly, I won't, I won't give you a full uh, CV of Hans Ulrich because it would take up all the time that we have this morning. Um, Hans Ulrich Obrist, he's always travelling. I mean, he was always travelling. He was a moving target throughout the 1990s when I first encountered him and when he founded the museum Robert Walser, kind of travelling museum. I'm not sure if it really existed or not. Um, when he was doing a project called Mig Migrateurs, a, a programme at Musée d'Art Moderne de la Ville de Paris, and more recently is director of international projects at the Serpentine Gallery, not very far from here. Which sounds like not a lot, really. Well, it sounds like enough, doesn't it? But then there's all the interviews, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of interviews. And there's the exhibitions, at least 200 exhibitions, I believe, that you've curated. Plus editing the writings of artists like Gerhard Richter, Maria Lasnig, Leon Golov, and Louise Bourgeois. What do you do in your free time? <laughs> <laughs> Doing books. Doing books. Yeah, it's always been a book obsession to some extent. I'm either, either, either reading books or buying books or editing books. Yeah. And the thing has really always been kind of rather addictive. So I would say any free time has to do with book addiction uh -huh, somehow. Uh -huh, yeah. uh -huh. <laughs> and is that since childhood or you... Or, or yeah, kind of, almost. Yeah, in some way, I think the... Um, the book uh, addiction started really. I mean, I grew up in uh, in Switzerland, very near the library of St. Gall, and it's a monastery library, and mm -hmm. it has these extraordinary medieval, you know, books. And, and uh, uh, I always went to visit this library, and uh, that somehow uh, preceded any visit to the museum. So okay, okay. And um, we had a conversation yesterday in which Hans Ulrich said that cities are now like like monasteries, really. That only, like an ancient monk, he travels from city to city studying in the different monasteries, like like um, the hero in The Name of the Rose, or his young apprentice, perhaps that's <laughs> how he began, really. His name I've, I've conveniently forgotten. One of the reasons we're here today is because of a series of books called, which are interviews, and we're up to number 19 or number 20 now. I think 20 should come out soon, so that's one of the most recent okay, ones, with Gustav, yeah. With Gustav Metzger. And I also have on my desk at home a huge volume with about 75 interviews in it, which was, uh, which was published by Charter, which I find a, a, a complete resource and, and refer to it all the time. But why, why interviews? Why did you get involved in doing so many interviews as a format? Yeah, I mean, the format, it, I think it has to do with David Sylvester, the idea that they kind of got recorded. I mean, I always had conversations with artists, and from the outset, I mean, as a teenager, I started to visit artists, and then uh, on Wednesday afternoons when I was in school, I went to Fischle Weiss, and that's sort of when I was 16, 17, I started, and then Fischle Weiss would send me to see Alighiero Boetti, and I mean, anyway, something Harald Seemann described uh, when he did When Attitudes Become Form, he went to see Jan Dibbets, and Jan Dibbets sent him to Mario Merz, and Mario Merz, and then a few weeks later, he was in Hans Hake studio. So that's very much been the beginning of my research, an artist telling about another artist. Officially, Weiss would send me to lots of other artists, and our school went to Rome, and I 
then instead of following our school trip, we'll go and see Boeti. So conversations with artists have always been the, the kind of the, the, the thing I was doing, but I was never recording them. And then yeah. at a certain moment, I read this book by David Sylvester with his dialogues with Francis Bacon, and I read uh, Pierre Caban's marvelous sessions with Marcel Duchamp. Mm -hmm. I think it's three long mm -hmm. afternoon sessions. Uh, Brassa is kind of extended interviews with Picasso, and I started to think, as I see these artists again and again, it might be kind of interesting to record them, but I didn't know how. Okay. And then in the early 90s, there was this museum in Vienna, Museum in Progress, which still exists. Um, and it's a kind of a media museum, which in an Alexander Dorner tradition tries to uh, expand museum space into billboards, into uh, magazine space, mm -hmm. into uh, television. So artists would do like Gary Schum stuff for television. And they had a kind of a project that they would always invite a curator or a critic to interview an artist for television. And so I was with Felix Gonzalez Torres in a TV studio and with Vito Aconci. These were the sort of two uh, first. At the same time? Yeah, the same day, okay. one in the morning and okay. one in the afternoon. Okay. And we felt incredibly uncomfortable because the, the lighting, the, the, the idea of it being a TV studio. So, so I kind of thought that's probably not the way I you know, wanted yeah. to record interviews. And then, so we almost got defined. Uh, as the opposite, so to do it in a cafe or to do it, and from that moment onwards, it was always kind of like very. I, I like that format very much, and you know, when one's reading these these interviews, it will say where different bits of the interviews have taken place. You know, always in nice places like cafe floor, and they're never in the sort of um, little chef on the motorway. But but there was one, I think, in the Oliver Eliasson uh, interview. He said, "Your your most cogent and." searching question is where the hell are we <laughs> <laughs> and it's this collision of the everyday with the with with these serious art questions which I, I find very um, they carry you along it's almost as if there are stories of a relationship yeah they're kind of I mean particularly with um, if it's with Olaf or also with uh, I would say that's what the, the Koenig series this conversation series is about it's about because then we did at a certain moment, I mean, I never thought of publishing the interviews, then this book happened, the thick book, uh, which was an idea of uh, Francesco Bonami and yeah. Pitti when, when in 2003, they just thought they could gather it all in one book. And then I thought somehow when this book was out that actually it's only one interview per artist, but what I'm really doing is I'm speaking to the same artist sure. again and again. Sure. And so from that point of view, we then talked to uh, Walter Koenig and we thought it could be really interesting to do the opposite almost and just do only the, the books with artists I've spoken many, many times. Okay. For example, Gustav, it started with Gustav Metzger in the, in the 90s when we convinced him to come back to the exhibition world because he Was somehow... in Paris with Life Live? Life Live, yes. yeah. And he somehow had stopped really exhibiting in museums and uh, we, we showed him in, uh, in Life Live uh, with the historic photographs piece and did lots of interviews at that time and then Laboratorium and then there was a 10-year break and I moved back to London and we started to record again. So sure, the book is about sure. these two. So this very early experience, with you just went and knocked on the door of Fishley and Weiss and then they sent you to see Ogieri Boetti. You never got the feeling they were trying to get rid of you and <laughs> you along to other people. But that was an amazing generosity you now, a great lesson for a young... What did you want to be then? Were you just curious? Were you just... Because that's one thing about you, ever since I've met you back in the 90s, you, you strike me as an in, in, incorrigibly curious and um, insatiable, insatiable in your hunger for information. Is that what drives you to ask all these questions? What, what motivates 
Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I didn't really know at the beginning what, what was the reason. I think it had a lot to do. I mean, Switzerland at that time, was a, there was a great intensity of exhibitions because there was Jean-Christophe Hamann was in Basel at that mm -hmm. time, and the Kunsthalle Basel was an incredibly, uh, you know, an intense uh, exhibition forum. Mm -hmm. And then Harald Seemann was at the Kunsthalle Zurich, and so when I was 12, 13, 14, I went to see all these shows, and that was a trigger of some sort. And then at a certain moment, uh, out of this grew the desire to kind of meet artists. And, and besides... Uh, Fischli-Weiss, another really early encounter was Gerhard Richter. And I went to one of his openings in, in Switzerland, um, and he said, uh, and I said, can I visit your studio? And he said, fine. And so that's, that's so how this... you were a kid, you were a kid, really. Yeah, somehow. And uh, that's how, how it then started. And there wasn't really, it wasn't clear what it would lead to. I just knew I wanted to be with art and work with artists. Okay. And I, I knew I wouldn't, it wouldn't have to do necessarily with the commercial aspect of the art world. I wouldn't want to be a gallerist. That I knew quite early. But I didn't really know what, and then I kind of at a certain moment, obviously Seemann was a kind of a curatorial model, and um, so I wasn't really sure what it would leave. And then it was really the epiphany was the, epiphany is maybe a too big word, but the revelation was the kind of conversation with Boetti, because we then had a, a long conversation with Alighiero Boetti in Rome, and he basically said that he finds it very strange as a, and it leads back to the question of formats, really. We, we, we discussed also yesterday that, that sort of, Boiti said it's very strange as an artist, you're kind of always asked to do the same thing. You're asked to do a, a gallery show, mm -hmm. you're asked to do a museum show, you're asked to do stuff for art fairs. Sometimes one is invited to a Venice Biennale, or at that time there weren't a hundred other Biennales, but now it would be, now an artist is invited to all these other Biennales. And then once or twice in a lifetime, maybe a documenta, and every couple of years a public art commission. So it's a very limited format. It's a roster of kind of formats. And he says, as an artist, I've got all these other desires. No, I want to do all these other projects. And nobody ever asks me. And when I mention them, people think it's not possible. And so he thought that would be a good thing for me. To, to be in the intercity, in the gaps between all the other things. Something like that. And so that was really somehow a revelation, which then, because until then I didn't really know what I could do or what I could contribute or something like that. You never considered being an artist? No, no, no. That was you never thought about it? or you just? No, I never thought about it. I always wanted to, to kind of uh, uh, either organize or curate. Or that's, that's, I mean, have you ever thought about why you, have you ever thought about why you wanted to be this midwife or this, this person who was helping artists or expanding the territory in some way without being an artist. It's a curious, um, it's like you've invented your own role really then. Yeah, and at the same time, it's, it's interesting because there were also, I think, roles from the past because I think we can never, I mean, Panofsky once said, if we think about the future, we always use fragments from the past. And I think to some extent, I mean, another thing which at that time was really important was this biography of Felix Fénéon which I think an American woman called Halprin wrote, and uh, it's the biography of Felix Fénéon, who as an anarchist was also a curator, was also an art critic, was a gallerist, yeah. was a yeah. friend of the artists, and... and um, Jean Courbet, wasn't he? And also yeah. Seurat, very yeah. close to yeah. Georges Seurat. Um, and to some extent, I think that book played also a big role in the sense of to see that Fénéon kind of invented all these different possibilities, mm -hmm. how to be a bridge. And he even said at a certain moment that he wanted to be, I mean, a bridge is maybe not the word, but he said he wanted to be passerelle, no? And I think this idea of the passerelle is kind of nice. Because yeah. it's not the gigantic bridge, it's more like to build many mm -hmm. smaller bridges mm -hmm. somehow between art and the world. Mm. Does that have a... Um, um, what that really... Re I'm sorry, I'm digesting this as, I, as I'm asking the question, so I, I'm, I'm thinking about... 
So when you say about building this bridge between art and the world, it depends what art, doesn't it? There is some art that you... What, what determines which art, who you interview, which artists you, you write about? What, what has formed your sense of what is the right thing to do? Yeah, I think the, the idea, I think it's a lot to do because you also asked a question before about information, which exactly. maybe I haven't answered so, so well yet. And I think to some extent it's often to do with this idea. I mean, in French, it's the word élargir et approfondir. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, élargir would be kind of widen or enlarge, and then approfondir, sure. deepen. And I think in some kind of way, there is often sort of both things. I mean, on the one hand, uh, there is a permanent idea of enlarging, and particularly, um, I think, I mean, besides this uh, revelation with Boetti, a second revelation was Huang Yongping. I then, based on my first show in, the, in my kitchen, which was the kitchen I, I you know, lived in, in, in Switzerland, uh, I got a so grant. So you did your first show in the, in the kitchen? Yeah, it was basically, the ki my kitchen was full of books. It ties in with our book discussion, and uh, Fish Levi thought that uh, we should eliminate these books from the kitchen and make the kitchen into a real kitchen, and that could be the exhibition. Okay. And then we had, there was Richard Wentworth and... Uh, Fish Levi's and Frédéric Pauli Duabre uh, and uh, uh, Hans-Peter Fellman used the fridge. Yeah. You know, they made interventions in the kitchen. And I think went on for three months and had uh, 30 visitors. Um, and somehow based Popular on... Popular show then, <laughs> really, yeah. <laughs> and it developed a sort of a rumor. And, and, uh, and somehow it, it gave... Um, it, 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 pr it sort of pr uh, triggered the grant which I got from the Cathy Foundation. I arrived there the first day and I had two neighbors. There was the late Absalom, the sculptor okay, from yeah. Israel, uh, and the great Chinese artist Huang Yongping was somehow my neighbor. This was in Jouyon-Josas. Uh, in Jouyon-Josas. And I mean, I had kind of grown up totally in a Westkunst paradigm, as Caspar Koenig called it. I mean, it was very much the 80s. Uh, it was all still Western art. And arriving here at the very beginning of the 90s and spending three months with Absalom and Huang Yongping, who were two great protagonists, one could say, of, of uh, Eastern art, and uh, sort of changed really the way how I would do I would do research. And so, from that point of view, started then a huge work on on, on on Asia. We see this on the move. And so there has always been this idea of producing a lot of uh, of being immersed in a lot of information. Also, when we did the first show with Caspar Koenig, the Broken Mirror, mm. we went to hundreds of painting, you know, painter studio visits. But I would say that then leads always to a going into depth. And I think so very often out of that grows then the necessity to sure. do maybe sure. solo shows with sure. some of these artists. And, and, um, and so it's somehow yeah. a mix. I, I saw the Broken Mirror and felt it was a resource, really. Because I was doing a show for the Haywood on painting at the time. And I used yeah. it like as a library, in a way. Because um, you did all the work. And all I just had to do was one of those. So we look. But, but there was the idea of an, ex an exhibition as information, really, rather yeah. than... That, that was its main. That was its main driving force, was it? and I felt the same rather really in in Utopia Station and in, in the different ways that that has had its different. It's, it, it's existed as exhibitions. It exists online. It exists. I don't know in other in other ways that there. This broadening and deepening it, it, it spills over, doesn't it? It's 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 a spilling out over the out of the museum and out of the. It's a sort of. Um, flooding, in a sense. Some places it's a puddle, in other places you drown in it. Yeah, it's maybe organic or something. Leon Golub always said they've got so many uh, images that maybe it's almost becoming organic. That was a kind mm. of a, a Leon Golub idea. But I think in some kind of way it also I started to think there may be also limits to this model. And, and, and I think particularly 
you know, if one is an independent curator, uh, mm. one only does these kinds of shows in the sense of that the monographic shows are always done within the museums. And that's something I sort of observed in the late 90s. And it sort of became the reason also why I kind of, in 2000, changed completely the way I would work. And I started to become, to stop traveling, you know, sure. nonstop and became a curator in Paris and then same thing now in London and really had an office and uh, do mostly monographic shows and, and uh, uh, compress the travels more like on, on, on shorter amounts of time because I think it had to do with that somehow. Mm. But, but there's still this punishing schedule and, and the 24-hour um, <laughs> kind of marathons of, of interview and discussion, for example. Um, why put, put oneself and, one and the audience and everybody else through something so, so relentless? You mean like the marathon? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean the marathons, uh, I think it's again to do with, with formats in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a way. And I think, I mean, um, exhibitions throughout the 20th century have been all about invention mm. of, of formats and doubts also about, about formats and, and all kinds of rules of the games. But conferences and symposiums uh, have never really questioned that. And, and it's still a round table with four or five speakers and a Q&A. Then maybe a dinner in a restaurant, and we all know that that format mostly doesn't work, yeah. uh, and still it's repeated all over the world. So at a certain moment, I thought it could be interesting to bring the experience I've accumulated in the world of exhibitions into the sort of conference sort of field, and do all kinds of other rules of the game, yeah. uh, slower things, faster things, uh, and, and uh, that can then be that everything circles around one person, which like the Alain Robbe event we did at a certain time where we had lots of artists in a polyphonic way yes. uh, interacting with, uh, it was actually Alain Robbe's last public event uh, he, when he, when he came to London, yeah. Um, and then at the same time the marathon is kind of the, the opposite, the marathon is this idea and that somehow had to do really with experiences uh, I, I sort of thought in terms of the theatre world which are so interesting when there are certain pieces in theatre which can last 10 or 20 yeah. hours and one would attend a little bit and then go for a dinner and maybe come back yeah. and yeah. meet people in the bar next door and come back. Yeah. And so it had to do with that. It had also to do with the, f the experience in music festivals where one wouldn't necessarily listen to every concert no. and, and would listen to some concert and then hang out and to try to bring that into the conference. It's, it's a bit like those, those um, you know, 24-hour Terry Riley concerts where you come in and out, or, or, or um, uh, Peter Brook yeah. um, theatre piece. And in a way, I s well, what strikes me is that you're kind of rescuing the conference, or the, or the idea of this, rescuing them from academia, in a sense, because they're not academic events, are they? They're, they're, um, they're not closed events where people are reading papers so much as, as uh, there is an element of theatre then. Yeah, it tries to open it up from uh, it being too kind of close, but uh, in some kind of way, it's obviously also, I mean, there are experiments and they can also fail. Mm -hmm. And I think the whole idea that we also, you know, take a risk, I mean, uh, in China, failure is positive. And I think yeah. there is, it's something Cedric Price, when we're actually, we are near, uh, he's, he's Lincoln in Fields, so we're very near yes, the Sones Museum, you know? And uh, where, where I curated a show in 2000. And somehow when, uh, and I actually used to live there because they had this guest room, this color room on top floor of the Sones Museum, which is now a fundraising office, but at that time it was a scholar, you know, research kind of office. Um, and we were working with the late Cedric Price, uh, and I will never forget that the, when we were working on his piece for the Sones Museum, 
Yvonne Day said how strange that in the Western world there is this fear of failure, no? of making useful mistakes. I think particularly with these sort of formats of these conferences, these experiments, it's always a risk, obviously, yeah, and, sure. and uh, something like that. Or, or that something that feels like a failure at the time can be, you look back on it and, it, and it's been extraordinarily productive. And I'm thinking of Take Me, I'm Yours, a show that you did at a certain time when I first came across you, really, and what you were doing um, around that time which seemed actually rather prophetic in the way that exhibitions have developed since, um, even if the artists like Fabrice Bear sort of disappeared for a bit. Now that was interesting. But coming back to um, this idea of the conference and the talk, you, you, you've been talking to scientists, I understand, quite a lot, but you've done this book, Formulas for Now, you know, which, is, which is all about how to, how to live now, really. Tablespoon of talent, five drops of popularity, one drop of luck, 10 kilograms of discipline, six glasses of self-sacrifice and three grams of spirituality equals genius. I, I seem to remember that's a that Marina Abramovich piece on the cover, but is, is this a new thread to, to um, have dia make dialogues between science and the arts? Is, are you trying to bridge the two cultures? Yes, I mean, somehow it started, I, I sort of got a phone call in 93, just after the Broken Mirror, the painting show with Caspar, mm -hmm from uh, Hubert Burda, who had this academy of the, of the third millennium and brought scientists and artists and different people together. And I was invited to a gathering <coughs> in, in Munich, and there were all these brain scientists, and, uh, uh, and they were organizing a big conference at that time on, uh, art, on basically on, on, on the neuroscience and the computer mm -hmm. thing. And I had never met a scientist in my life, and somehow that, was, that marked somehow the beginning. And they asked me then to organize an event for this conference, and we spoke to Carsten Höller and came up with this idea that we could somehow do a conference which is a non-conference, because we, we are an anti-conference. Sure. And so we invited all these different artists, uh, Matt Malikan, who had an interest in neuroscience, no? Matt Malikan or Patrick van Kakenberg, the Belgium artist, or Andreas Dominski, Douglas Gordon, um, to, to this science center in Jülich. But the conference got canceled last minute by us, and it was just the coffee breaks. And, okay. uh, and in some kind of way, artists and scientists were visiting each other, and the artists visited the science labs, and that somehow marked the beginning. So it's a rather long thing which had evolved. It then became more formalized when we did Laboratorium with Barbara van der Linden in 99, yeah. where we tried to explore the, the, the artist's studio and the scientist's laboratory and how that, yeah. that relates, and the whole city of Antwerpen was declared a kind of a, a laboratory. And ever since, there has been quite a lot of dialogues with, with scientists, and often, I mean, I've, I mean, I would say that besides Boeti um, and uh, maybe that Huang Yongping revelation, there was a sort of a third uh, uh, mini epiphany or revelation at, at the beginning is when I found in a used bookshop uh, Alexander Dorner's uh, Ways Beyond Art. Okay, and yeah. he was the director in the 20s of the Hanover Museum and uh, was a big influence on, on Bar and the beginnings of MoMA. And he wrote this wonderful book in exile when he had, he had to leave Germany in yeah. the 30s because um, actually his museum in Hanover got, got dismantled. And, uh, and he wrote that basically if we want to understand the forces which are effective in visual arts, it's, it's important to kind of understand what's happening in science or architecture. And that had a lot to do with his conversations with Lisitsky, you know, who somehow had taught him that. And I thought that it could always be interesting to do the same I do with art, which means studio visits and meet artists with scientists, so when an artist would mention to me Benoit Mandelbrot, which a lot of artists did at a certain moment, I'd just ring oh, up... Chaos theory and the Mandelbrot diagram. Exactly, I'd just ring him up and go to see him. Yeah. Uh, and in a similar way, a lot of artists kept mentioning Albert Hoffman. 
the, the guy synthesized LSD. Yeah, yeah. The first time ever LSD inventor, and, and he uh, was almost 100 years old when we went to meet him in Basel. Uh, and whilst we did the interview, he, uh, he sketched uh, uh, on a piece of paper the, the formula for, uh, it's, it's actually here in, for, for LSD. And that was really the trigger of this book. And we, he did it on a paper napkin, which we then scanned. And I showed it to a lot, this, this formula here. That's it, that's, that's it. Don't lick that page. <laughs> <laughs> and then we showed it to lots of artists, and they thought it's the kind of most extraordinary uh, thing they've ever seen. And they it looks like a Frank Auerbach a bit, doesn't it? It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. It's visually very beautiful. Yeah. And we then just thought, it, it, because it triggered so many reactions, that it could be interesting. And, and I, I put a, a, a photocopy on my office wall, and it triggered a lot of other formulas because a lot of artists said we actually have also formula and then I say yeah. email it and all these emails arrived. So the book has been a lot done by email um, and in some kind of way it's actually related also to Utopia Station because a long time earlier um, in, in around 2000 we had started to work with Thames and Hudson on, on a book which Molly Nesbitt and I were supposed to do on Utopia yeah. um, and which we never finished. It just the topic was too big for us. It was somehow it led to Utopia Station, so okay. it produced okay. an exhibition, but we somehow couldn't uh, finish the book, and so it somehow became this book. And uh, the, the the walls of the office got more and more filled with this uh, with this formula, and at a certain moment, Brian Eno saw my office with these 100 or 150 formulas, and he thought John Brockman should see it. And John Brockman runs this. Um, uh, site called Edge. Yeah. It's it's very interesting site to visit. It's edge.org. Uh, org, not org. It's org. Okay. Yeah. And he <laughs> he brings actually <laughs> together there. I mean, he really is a science curator, and he brings together the great minds of science on certain questions. So always at the end of the year, um, and it's actually very interesting because it's inspired by James Lee Byers, because he James Lee Byers was his neighbor and his friend, and in some kind of way he, as a science publisher, my mind is boggled actually. I mean, just trying to imagine this. And so yeah. he kind of got a James Lee Byers, because James Lee Byers did this World Question Center, no, where he, it was really lovely, where basically James Lee Byers would, would, would ring the whole world, I mean the Dalai Lama and Freeman Dyson, and would say, ask me a question. And he went to see my friend Brockman, who, has, who knows all the scientists, and Brockman had to deliver him all these famous scientists. The only thing, you know, that Byers didn't tell him is that he, once the Dalai Lama or Freeman Dyson asked the question, Byers would hang up on that because that's <laughs> all he needed was that question. And so ultimately, Brockman then did himself this World Question Center for scientists. So he'd ask always at the end of the year a question. So it's not so uh, unrelated to me sure, asking all sure, these artists sure. about their dream or about their. Uh, that's another book, Book of Dreams. Or asking them, or now in a new project we are starting, where I ask all the artists, what's your map? No maps for the 21st century, where basically okay. mappings will, be, will become a book. And, uh, and in some kind of way, Brockman got really excited when he saw all these formulas, and he says, I'm going to run it by the Edge community. So he then, the same night, once Brian Eno took him to my office, emailed everybody, and that's how basically we then got Richard Dawkins and Freeman Dyson mm. and all these answers from so it's almost the project within a fortnight had doubled no? isn't, or mirrored isn't uh, Watson of, of, of DNA was it Crick Watson is in Watson, yeah Crick had died Crick had died yeah. Watson Watson did, did a drawing also the, the double helix yeah. yeah and then also we have also the Mandelbrot fractal Mandelbrot drew the fractal that's the fractal yeah yeah it's in one way, when you pick up this book, that particular book, 
you think, oh, it looks like one of those jokey Christmas leave it in the loo books. Um, <laughs> sorry. But, uh, <laughs> you know, for people to leave through while they're concentrating. Um, but in a way, you're trying to take this, the book into another place. It's, it's uh, as well as the interviews, you know, in this slightly wonderfully old-fashioned sort of cover by M&M, French um, design team. Um, as well as all the interviews, you know, books like this uh, seem to occupy another indeterminate space. You know, they're, they're, they're not they're, they're to be dipped into and looked at, rather than, you know, there are some books which are written to be thrown against the world, with the war with, with great force, and books which are meant to be taught rather than read. But, but this is, um, it seems that you want to, to do things with books that, that to, to have a book that's more like a, an exhibition space. Would that be right? That, that it's more yeah. like a, occupying a sort of territory, a, a different sort of ter a territory between territories, which you mentioned earlier on in your when we began today. Yeah, I see it as an exhibition kind of. I mean, in this mm -hmm. sense, it's also. I mean, it has again certain predecessors. I think. I mean, Cesc Siegel outfit his Xerox mm -hmm. book, you know, in the 60s, where he basically uh, would declare for the first time he was friends with Lawrence Wiener and. Douglas Hübler, and he, he realized these artists actually realized book imminent artworks. So he did a big photocopy book yeah. and said, that is the exhibition. Or Lucy Lippard <coughs> did a great show. She just counted the number of inhabitants of Vancouver and Seattle where her shows took place, which was, I think, Vancouver had 500,000 something and yeah. Seattle 900,000 something. And that became a whole set of postcards where each artist uh, did a postcard. So that the exhibition, and here it is, I mean, every artist has a page. And it is somehow a book imminent group show, if one wants. But I mean, in some way, my sort of awareness of books, it, it had a lot to do with really working. When we did the kitchen show at the beginning, Hans-Peter Fellmann and Boltanski were both artists who used a lot the book, uh, so did Fischli Weiss, used the book as a, as a medium. Mm. Uh, and when we did a catalog on the kitchen show, they say, you know, rather than doing another redundant group catalog, which, which were just if every artist has four pages, we should do some artist books, maybe. And so we did a box for the kitchen show where Feldman, Boltanski, Wentworth, Fischli Weiss, they all did a little, yeah. one could say, book imminent yeah. kind of work. And then soon after the kitchen, we started to work with Gerhard Richter on this tiny exhibition in the Nietzsche house in Sils Maria. Because Richter was obsessed always by, by Nietzsche, and he always went to Sils Maria for holidays. And so we inserted some of his overpainted photographs in the vitrines of the, of the Nietzsche house and started to discuss with him about the book. And looking at all his books, yeah. I somehow got aware again of the fact that he had not just done catalogs about his work, but he had done all these artist books where the book would be the work. And so that, that somehow maybe was the, the analog to this for the group show to the, to the solo show. And then in the conversation with Richter, we also found out this other kind of possibility for books, which are the artist writings, which yeah. is something uh, we are both very interested in, which exactly. is the exactly. artist as a as a writing, uh, uh, because somehow artist writings, I think, are still an underrated medium. Of some Me sort. too, absolutely, absolutely. And I, th I think a lot for, for the audience and the reader, as well as you know, exhibition goes that, and for the artists, I think that people are getting bored with the, the bog standard, you know, exhibition mm. catalogue with the, with the the little essay that says why this is the greatest thing since the last exhibition catalogue I wrote about the other greatest thing that I wrote about. But they become redundant in a way and um, you want them to live in in another, you want exhibitions to live in another way really in catalogues rather than just being rather dutiful, subservient um, publications. But um, 
But I'm, I'm very interested in that as, a, as an idea. And, um, but at the same time, on the whole, publishers are becoming more and more conservative and they want to shift units. And um, you look at Tate, for example, and their publications department, they want everything sort of standardized. And um, um, they're the, they're, it's a big fight for artists who show there to, to get the catalogs that they feel they, they want. Sometimes they win, most of the time they don't. So how can this work without the, the support of publishers or other publishers that do support it? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's interesting in the sense of that, obviously, the sort of homogenizing forces of, of packaging, I mean, they're yeah. also effective in the world, not only in the world of publishing, but also in the world of exhibitions, somehow, because, mm -hmm. I mean, it's the same for touring shows. They just get put in crates and shipped to the next city. And I've always thought that it's kind of interesting to... Uh, um, find ways of actually <coughs> avoiding that and creating yeah, somehow yeah. you know different models and one of the earliest kind of uh, I would say attempts to that we tried to do was this point of irony where we did with Botansky and, and Agnes B this kind of magazine where we always give the artist two posters and they get folded and printed a hundred thousand copies uh, and it has always a different form of dissemination a different form of uh, distribution so sometimes it can all go to one university or sometimes it can all go to one town, or sometimes it goes to a mailing list. No, so it's, it has a non-homogenized kind sort of, of viral yeah infiltration or yeah, something like yeah, that. And you have outbreaks, and you have um, <laughs> and then uh, and pauses and silences. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Let's not go too far. Yeah, carry on. But it's interesting. Then I mean, the thing about the books, I think there's lots of different possibilities because obviously, I mean, the the, in the interesting experience with the conversation series is that we really discussed with. Uh, with um, um, with Walter Koenig, how could one develop a, a series? No, and, it, and we were thinking about what had been series in the past, like the Merve books in Germany, where you had hundreds and hundreds of these little textbooks in a series called Merve. How could one really develop a series, which then would almost be their own series within the world? And so we, and there can be now it's an unlimited number of books as long as we have ideas. And so that's one possibility. I think that one invents maybe new new series and new formats. Um, and the other one is, I mean, like the, the formula book that in some kind of way it's, it's somehow an, an exhibition as, as a book. Mm -hmm. So I think there are infinite sort of possibilities, and I still believe that somehow um, publishing is open, is open to that. But I think in, in, in some kind of way it's obviously not... Um, I mean, it's maybe more the question if, if we look at airports and the books which are in airport bookshops, yeah, yeah. there we have the problem. I mean, none of these books are at airports. Maybe they should be. <laughs> But, but this, uh, one of the models for all this is someone like Araki, isn't it? Not yeah. Araki, the Japanese photographer, who produces hundreds of books. You know, he's producing books all the time. And some get censored, mm. some don't get out, some appear in all sorts of Sammy's dad versions. But, but he's always had this, this idea of getting the work out, getting the work out, getting the work out. And um, I don't know if anybody could collect all of Araki's books because nobody knows exactly how many there are. Very feverish, yeah. It's yeah, feverish. It's it's totally feverish, and um, at the same time, there's always things missing, aren't there? Who 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 would you like to? What would? Who would you like to interview, and what books do you want to do? Who haven't you done? Who haven't you got lost with in a car in Iceland yet? Um, what cafes have you visited with which artists? <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of unrealized details. I mean, on Kavara, that's why we dedicated him the, yeah. uh, the, the white, the big white book with all the, it, it has a microphone on the cover, which Hans-Peter Feldman photographed, yeah. and it's switched on, so it says on, it's an homage to on Kavara, because he never gives interviews, he's yeah. never given an interview, so that's by necessity unrealized. 
I think also Godard is a is a kind of an unrealized Jean-Luc Godard. Yeah. yeah. And Nauman. These are maybe three, Bruce Nauman, they are kind of three unrealized. And then Ligeti. I mean coming from um uh the contemporary art field and it's always my home base into into the field of music, Ligeti as a composer has inspired so many artists so at a certain moment I tried to interview Ligeti and we had many conversations with him just before he died and he was explaining to me that he had 30 years more music to write so and he was 70 so he didn't have any time so that was an unbeatable argument so there are always on and then there's obviously the big book I mean I've run down a smaller book on it but there is the big unrealized project is sort of ironically my project about unrealized projects because in all the in all the interviews, the, the only question which is recurrent, which I always ask, uh, is what is your unrealized project? What is the, yeah. the unbuilt roads? What was too well, big to be? We've just been there now. And that's, yeah. and that's the, to do a book on all these answers is kind of uh, yeah. the unrealized. And to do a show on all these answers yeah. is the big unrealized yeah. project. And what have you learned from talking to artists? Have they, what have you, is there a something about, having interviewed so many, I mean, we all look at a lot of art, but having interviewed so many artists, is there anything about the art the, and scientists as well? I mean, is there anything about the artist mindset that you've learned and discovered? Yeah, I think it's almost like a daily learning. So it's almost like I would say it's the it's the permanent it's the it's like a permanent school, the the conversation project. I mean, mm-hmm. art maybe as a desire to be different or to be elsewhere is certainly something which is recurrent, but then I think also in some kind of way it's not only during the conversation that is a permanent learning process, but it's also the preparation of the conversation, because in some kind of way whenever I would record such a conversation I'd read everything someone has published or everything someone has written, and that's almost like going back to university each time. It's a kind of a very intense reading process, which uh, so it's, it's, it's like my school, it's a permanent school. Uh, and what about when you return for your second and third interviews? At, um, <laughs> do they tell lies? Do they make <laughs> things up? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing uh, of, the recurrent, of the recurrent conversation, I mean, I think that's why this David Sylvester Francis Bacon interview <laughs> is, so, is so incredibly beautiful, because I think one of the things which can happen, ideally, is that maybe things which are unspeakable or un... Is it unspeakable in English? Yeah, the things, be, yeah, the yeah. things which are unspeakable or, or difficult to speak about, that maybe little by little one can approach those things, and, or, uh, unspo- and that yeah. or unspoken or unspeakable, or things yeah. which are very yeah. difficult to... Yeah. And, and I just think it's in some kind of way a lot in terms of art practice is very difficult to talk be talked about and, sure. and, and from that point of view I think it's sure. maybe something which one can approach in this in this conversation without ever really completely getting there. Do you feel then you're in the place of the uh, psychoanalyst slightly? No, I think it's more it, it, it's more kind of uh, resi- it's a sort of a ping pong maybe more it's it's more like in, in some kind of way um, it, it, it's not a sort of a it's a process which is very much uh, can go in all directions yeah, and yeah. Um, in some kind of way produces reality. I think the key, the key, or maybe the umbilical cord or what, tie, what links all the conversations is that they're very much about producing reality together. And so if there is a conversation with an artist, very often it leads to a show or it leads to a book okay. or it leads to something which we do together. And so somehow it very much, I mean, very often, particularly the long conversations which are in the conversation series, have to do with also the intensity of working with an artist on a, on a big show and then maybe talking to him or her on a weekly basis for a year or even more yeah. and then out of that show uh, pops up again something else and it's very very often it's non 
non nonlinear. I mean, sure, there is this sure. there is this thing about about nonlinearity. Was uh, actually kind of uh, was uh, thinking about this the other day, actually in relation to Niklas Luhmann, because um, I've been reading about Niklas Luhmann's uh, kind of index card systems, and he he had uh, when he was 28, he suddenly realized that he wanted to kind of file all his information into a kind of um, um, an index card system. It was obviously pre-computer, but it yeah. sort of anticipates almost hi uh, hypertext. And for him, it sort of was very much about all these independent subsystems, no, which he had in his index card system. There are very beautiful photographs of Luhmann with his kind of uh, index cards. And, and I think in some kind of way, the conversation project, e even if it's not at all an index card system, I mean, I've got 1,500 hours now. They're all in little digital tapes. And then they're all transcribed, so it's a lot of uh, things also on the on the laptop. There are some form of uh, nonlinear system, or maybe some form of instruction for nonlinear thinking. Yeah. And very often, it's it's very much unpredictable what it would produce. So in a similar way that we would start with Molly Nesbitt and Rick Ritiavanisha to talk about the book on Utopia, and at the end an exhibition pops up called Utopia Station and the book about formula, yeah. it's very much, very often happens that one would start with an artist to work on a, on a show and it would lead to something completely else. It sounds like it's proceeding by contingency. Really. Yeah. But what you were saying earlier before we got onto the um, file cards was it also sounds like a seduction, like a love affair, you know. All that talking, and then it leads on, and then you get into the exhibition, and then it. <laughs> well, you know, use your imaginations, really. <laughs> <laughs> there are those who think that, that interviews are a bad format, even what we're doing here now, but that, it, that they are theatre, really. That, um, presumably, what you're saying is that you actually get beyond the. the you know, I've interviewed lots of artists, and they trot out the same things all the time. How do we get beyond that? How do we get? How do you make the real? How do you make the reality? Yeah, but that's a very interesting kind of uh, issue because I, that's obviously something which 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 uh, is, is happens. I think with the format is implicit in the format that very often it can lead to repetition. So, for example, the other day I went for the first time to see Elsworth Kelly, whom I had never met before. So I read every single conversation and every single museum catalog I could get hold of, and every single text I could get hold of of Elsworth Kelly over several weeks. And I've sort of realized that in some strange way, architecture plays a very big role in his work. And obviously, he has collaborations with architects. If it's um, um, Gary or Ian Pei, and he you know, would do things for buildings. At the same time, his own work has a lot of connections to architectural forms. He himself is more and more interested, particularly in the last years, to do kind of large-scale architectural yeah. projects, which are sort of where sculpture almost becomes architecture. Um, and at the same time, he has, throughout his life, done these incredibly strange architectural um, postcards, so which he has never really exhibited. So he, he, but he talked about them very, very rarely. So it's basically postcards on which he glues abstract shapes and abstract forms, and they're almost like on the scale of urbanism, gigantic urban interventions. Um, and so I then, after having done my homework, realized that that's the kind of thing Elsworth Kelly had not spoken enough about. So we did a whole conversation about his relationship to architecture and urbanism, and then we kind of realized that all of a sudden it wouldn't actually work anymore in that conversation book format, because in some kind of way Elsworth Kelly needs color. You can't have a black and white illustration yeah. of, you know, of Elsworth Kelly and also these incredible architecture. So it now we lead to something completely okay. else. Okay. So that's one okay. example how maybe yeah. repetition can be avoided. Yeah. 
It's also very useful to the analyst because in, in the repetition and the mistakes and the things yeah. that you change every time you say it, you say it differently, uh, you discover something new. So perhaps um, perhaps it's not such a, an inapposite um, way of thinking about this. Has ever, anyone ever wanted to do a book of you? I mean, uh, you, uh, you do this all the time. You, you're writing notes all the time. When we were chatting yesterday, you were writing notes. And you, you, you're generating stuff. You said you never wanted to be an artist. But I somehow think I'm not telling the truth there, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but has anyone ever wanted to, to do a book of you? Uh, no, that hasn't yet uh, happened. There is actually a kind of an archive which exists, which the, the artist shows at Grigley who is uh, uh, an American artist, he um, uh, had this idea about 12 years ago that he wanted to do um, uh, a project to basically uh, uh, make a sort of a, a project about the curator. So he, mm. he decided to, and that's a very long-term project, so he's basically done a bibliography uh, uh, of all the articles, texts, and, and, and I don't know exactly what, it's unpredictable what will be the outcome. He wants to do something. Yeah. It, might, it might be a book, I don't know. Yeah. Joseph Grigley, for those who, who don't know, is, is uh, after an a, a skiing accident, I think. It, it was a, an English professor, professor of English language studies, became profoundly deaf and um, basically communicates by writing little notes. You have to pass notes between each other because he doesn't sign and doesn't expect anybody else to. But, um, and he collects every conversation he's ever had. He keeps, he's got all the papers. And so 20, 10 years later, he can tell you what you wrote to him or <laughs> said to him 10 years before. So. And he writes things rather like, you, you, you're made for each other, you two. I'd like to open this up a bit to, to questions from the audience now, because the clock is ticking and we don't have forever. So. Um, I'm at the back on the right. Can't really answer that. <laughs> well, that formula is actually by by uh, Marina Abramovic, who's, who's Serbian, I believe. So I think she's remember. she's definitely not Swiss, Marina. She's is not not definitely not Swiss. <laughs> not Swiss. But personally, you subscribe to you. You you seem to work all the time. That's what you do. Yeah, it's a kind of a as Douglas Gordon once says, "Don't stop, don't stop, don't stop." But I mean, to some extent, I always think also it's got to do with. Uh, um, it's kind of a playful way of working, I suppose. So it's it's kind of play, but play is work or something. I think B I don't know who said that. I think it's Pino Pascali said that somehow. So mm -hmm. next, there's a question over here. Yes, I mean, in some way, th the reason why, you know, there are curators um, and you know, museum directors, uh, uh, curators who have actually had a background as a, you know, as an artist. So, for example, 
you know, my mentor, Kaspar Koenig, you know, with whom I did sort of my early exhibition in the, in the 90s, and, you know, he was a, a visual artist at the beginning, and then at a certain moment thought, you know, he might be stronger as a, you know, as a curator than as a, as a visual artist, and that happens quite often, and then the practice shifts. I've just not, never had that practice of never, you know, exhibited, I've never produced work for, for an exhibition. I wanted from the very beginning work with artists, no? and, and, and somehow, you know, um, do things with them and, and uh, you know, do books and, and exhibitions. So that's why, uh, you know, I, I really don't think that it's ever been a, uh, an artistic practice somehow. And, and uh, I've never, you know, never done, never done painting, never done sculpture, never done drawing. The only thing, I mean, you know, which in some kind of way is, is maybe um, uh, more related to this idea of is not curating has maybe more to do with it being somehow uh, authorship is the interview process and the interview process has always been a parallel reality uh, and, and it's more like an archive I would say than an artwork it's a, it's a kind of a time capsule it's an archive so I would more say it's to do you know with maybe a, a, a production of some form of archive of, 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 uh, of our time no? and, 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 and a kind of a way of, 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 of producing memory and I mean Eric Hofstrom um, told me once that he thinks that we need uh, uh, an urgent protest against forgetting and, and, and in some kind of way I think particularly uh, in this sort of situation where more and more information I mean, it ties in with something Adrian mentioned earlier about information you know I think in, in some kind of way we there have never been more information than now and information exponentially grows and soon we're going to actually double the information amount on the planet every couple of days I mean it's the intervals uh, become smaller and smaller between the and, and, and I think in some way that doesn't mean that there is more memory on the contrary, as Rand Colas once said, amnesia might very well be at the core of the digital age. And so in some kind of way I have a feeling uh, of great sense of urgency that we need to protest against forgetting. And very often also, I mean, uh, and that's maybe also interesting in relation to something we discussed earlier, I mean, there are these uh, artists who give hundreds and hundreds of interviews. Like, for example, we spoke yesterday about Gilbert and George, yeah. or, or, you know, Boltanski, they've given many, many interviews. And in this sense, it's very much to do with repetition and difference. Each interview is a little bit different, yet it's also similar. But then there are all these other artists, you know, whom I, whom I interview, where very often it's the only existing interview, because, you know, um, there is an incredible amnesia about their position, artists from the 60s and 70s. And the same thing is true for urbanists, no? I mean, if it's Jonah Friedman or Cedric Fries or Eckhart Schulze-Felix, or many of these incredibly inspiring urbanists from the you know 60s and 70s, at the moment when I go to see them, there is no book on them. There is so, so it's not that that there is you know too much memory. And so I think that that definitely, besides the, the the you know the curating, I sort of thought that that is another way because obviously exhibitions are a way to protest against forgetting. Uh, and I think you know the interview is maybe another one. Sounds like you want to slow down. I mean, what you were saying about amnesia and the digital is a, the blight of the digital age, really, and, and possibly being an outcome. But the book is a slow medium, isn't it? It's, it's if, it, if all this was on, um, you know, the Slork Foundation or, or Ubu Web or something, you could do all these interviews and they would exist purely as mm. to listen to. But you chose to put them in book format because that's more useful to other people? Or what's the... Why actually have them transcribed? Why, why not just as interviews? 
Yeah, that's uh, that's actually kind of uh, really interesting because I think it's maybe to do with resistance of some form. It's to do with and, and the slowness is maybe a form of resistance. Mm. But I also think that the idea that uh, in in some kind of way um, the the fact that it's 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 transcribed. I mean, it's also got to do that I would never publish it without the author having approved it. No, and particularly if I have all these interviews uh, in the archive and they haven't really been transcribed and corrected, they can then not be used. So it's also pragmatic in the sense of that once the author, I mean, uh, usually takes a long time to get them approved uh, by the author, but that's more the pragmatic thing. I think there's also something about the, the slowness which 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 is which is interesting and which somehow is almost contrary to the current zeitgeist, the fact that the books are slow. But then I still think, I mean, um, the way how I do books is maybe still too fast. I mean, I've got this really interesting experience now with Rem Kohlhaas, um, because we're doing this book with Rem about metabolism, and it's this Japanese architectural movement in the in the 60s, um, because we wanted, after having done portraits of cities, the, the marathons, uh, which we did with Rem, mm. that kind of we did at the Serpentine in, in Rem's uh, pavilion, uh, that was kind of a portrait of London, a, a very fragmentary portrait of London, but we've spoken to 72 people from London, from Doris Lessing to uh, Richard Hamilton to Zaha Hadid to Ken Loach uh, to many, many uh, younger practitioners about their view on London in 2006. And we felt, I mean, obviously it's impossible to do a synthetic image of a city, so it was about the possibility of this impossibility. And as a sort of an outcome of that, we were then wondering, could one do a portrait of a movement? And we were interested in this idea that, that all the historic avant-garde had to do with movements, and the neo-avant-garde in the 60s still had to do with movements, and now we don't seem to have movements really anymore. I mean, so stupid ones like stuckism or something. Yeah. Also more interesting ones which are not in yeah. the art and architecture world, like Tom McCarthy's kind of uh, a more literary neo-situationist yeah. Movements, but not really in the art and architecture yeah. world. It doesn't exist anymore. It's more atomized. And so with Rem, we were trying to find a movement where we could still make a, make a portrait. And Fluxus and in the art world, the, the whole 60s, 70s movement weren't really possible because all the, the main protagonists had already died and, and, uh, and it wasn't possible then. Uh, Rem came across metabolism, and uh, metabolism is incredibly interesting because also of the whole ecological dimension, um, the, the generation of Kikutake, Maki. Kurokawa. Whole new world to me, I'm afraid. Well, the whole generation of architects in the 60s who are mostly forgotten. Some of them are, are remembered. I mean, Mark is a bit more known. He won the Pritzker, but all the others are kind of more forgotten. And the idea was really to somehow go and see them all. And so we've done interviews with all of them. And uh, Kurokawa is the only one who now died. All the others are still, are still working. Um, and it was very interesting with Rem to actually see that his time horizon with books is an even much longer one than mine, because with me it takes a year or two, or sometimes three, and with Rem it takes ten. Because like uh, when he did Delirious uh, New York, I think mm -hmm. that took ten years, and then he did SMXL. And I always remember, it's this very thick book, uh, uh, I ordered it when I was at high school, and I think I already had left university by the time it came out, right? It was announced in the bookshop for about six years, and he still hadn't Should finished it. Should have Amazon, is there any another question? Uh, over on the left, and then. Yes, I mean there are many bridges. That's why the the, the Felix Fenner idea of the you know of the passerelle you know is is. Um, 
is important. I mean, if it's many of my exhibitions have happened in houses, and one of the reasons for that uh, has a lot to do with this idea that maybe within a house museum or within, if it's the kitchen or the Sir John Stone's house or the Baragan house or the locker house, maybe you know a gulf which there is between art and life that maybe is sort of uh, that sort of threshold which exists to the museum that that's maybe less the case and it's different and also it produces very different work if artists exhibit in a, in a house, no, in a kitchen mm -hmm. or in a living room than in a big monumental museum. Um, and that's actually why very often these bridges between disciplines have actually in a, in a strongest way explored when I did these house museum exhibitions. So for example, we explored really the link between art and architecture in the Baragan house. I think it was the most so far the most successful attempt for me, the most satisfying ex attempt to talk about art architecture, because Paragon had his obsession for art, and you know, with Alvos and, and uh, with his dear friend Chucho Reyes, the Mexican painter with whom they had a, a, a real dialogue. Um, and so we, we just invited artists to the Paragon House in Mexico and, and had, you know, in Mexico City, and had artists develop works in, in this house in answer to, to, to Barragan. So Carrie Flynn Evans would repair the record players and play the record collection of Louis Barragan and do a record about his records. And um, you know, Douglas Gordon would, would develop uh, text pieces in relation to, uh, uh, to, to Barragan. Gilbert and George would uh, basically just have a cup of tea in the Barragan house and the photograph was well, they did something when you did the project in Lorca's, <coughs> the house of Lorca, when Gilbert and George just went to bed, didn't they? In bed with Lorca. Yes. In bed with Lorca. Fully dressed, fully dressed, <laughs> it must be so, fully dressed. And the Lorca thing was also the link to literature, which I think is maybe the most recent attempt to, you know, to make a passerelle, because, I mean, interestingly enough, the, the, the bridge between art and literature has been at the forefront of all historic avant-garde in the 20th century, and was, I mean, surrealism was certainly the moment where it culminated, and, mm -hmm. but it's been true for all the other movements as, as well. And it's kind of very strange how in our time, I mean, there is, Every year there are many exhibitions about art and music. I wouldn't say that the art and architecture link is extremely underdeveloped. I mean, there is a lot of art and architecture bridges happening. Shows all over the world all the time explore, you know, bridges between art and architecture. Uh, but the, that key link to literature is maybe the most neglected one in our current time. And that has been my biggest desire in the last two or three years, is to, is to connect to that, because a lot of artists felt also a, a necessity. Um, and I mean, my conversations with Tacita Dean have been key for that. Uh, conversations with Said Wombly have been key for that because Said Wombly, whenever you know, I spoke with him in the 90s, he's been saying to me, you know, why doesn't the art world connect more to, to literature? Um, uh, went that far that he also felt that one should pay attention more to manuscripts of, 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 of writers, which is a very neglected kind of thing, uh, and, uh, you know, in terms of archives. And, and, uh, and so really the, the Lorca show in Granada was a way of, you know, through Tacitadin, through Saitwombly, through all the other artists, Dominique Gonzalez first, that we got there to, to make an homage to Lorca, and we also brought a lot of poets and, and writers to Granada to meet the artists. So, for example, Enrique Villamatas or James Fenton, who go to Granada and have dialogues there with artists. And so, you know, so these house museums are somehow uh, sketches or attempts to really do that. And might very well be that you know, one of the next exhibitions of a house museum, we then explore more the link to science again. There was a question up 